You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. To Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he is a fugitive of the law. Idiocy is his only option. It's Mr. <laughs> Jeff McLarge. I fought the law and I lost. I fought the law and the law won. I don't know what law. I, I did cut the tags off my pillows and mattress once. You so bastard. I'm wanted by the Sealy Posturepedic Police Force. How you doing? Hey, how am I doing? Funny you should ask. <laughs> All right. It's uh, it's not really a well-kept secret that we don't record this show week to week. Sometimes we stack up two, three, sometimes three shows all at once and then we get our little vacations and that way we can have like a little bit of buffer, yeah. you know, in case we want to go on vacation or in case something goes wrong, in it's which the, case both happen to me. <laughs> it's, the, it's the beauty of us. Uh, looking at the past and not trying to do things that are current. So yes. we have flexibility, yeah, exactly. Bill. Flexibility right. is the name of the game. Uh, so I went on vacation. Uh, I went up to Canada. Uh, that was my first time leaving the country since, um, you know, the, the pandemic. And I went to some concerts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to see my favorite band, Marillion. I got to see three concerts, three days in a row. It was pretty fantastic. As I was driving home, I was really, really thirsty even no, no matter how much I put the air conditioner on, I still felt warm because the sun was just like blasting into the car. Right. And then I got home and one of my Canadian roommates sent a, you know, a text out to all of us and said, hey guys, just letting you know, I just tested positive for COVID. Oh. And it was like 11 o'clock at night. I wasn't about to stay up for another 15 minutes. I was exhausted. So I took my temperature and it was a little over 100. So I knew, you know. And yep. then I tested myself in the morning, and sure enough, yep, I uh, the, today is day 10, and I have had COVID-19, and it has been an adventure. I'm sure it has. So, <laughs> at, at the risk of, of dragging us kicking and screaming into the semi-current, mm-hmm. what was it like, Bill? I've heard a lot of people, especially people that have never had COVID, say things like, oh, it's like having the flu, or... Oh, some people just get the sniffles. Let me explain to you my case. Getting COVID is not like having the flu because I've had the flu before. Getting COVID is very much like having COVID. Um, Okay. Yeah, this this was like a whole new experience. And people say things like, oh, flu-like symptoms. Yeah, because that's the way your body reacts. If you cut your leg and the the cut gets infected, you run a fever because that's the way your body deals with infections. Right. So I had a fever, maybe about 100, 101 for like the first day, day and a half. 
I slept a lot that first day. Like, I could only manage to stay awake for, like, 90 minutes at a time. Right. And then after that, the worst of it was over, and my fever, like, steadily declined. The weird, like, the weird side effects, because everybody gets, like, there's, like, I think, like, 30 different side effects you can choose from, and you, like, spin the wheel and see which ones you get. (laughs) You, well, technically, you're not choosing them if you spin the wheel of random side effects, but yeah, I understand. Right, right, you. right, yeah. My grab bag that I picked up at the COVID bazaar, yeah, I had the fever, I had the, the fatigue. Not too much brain fog that I hear a lot about, although it has happened. The weird one I got was, I didn't lose my sense of smell or taste, but I was getting phantom smells. Yep. Like, you know, not... Sweat like, you know, old gym socks or, you know, uh, a locker room or something like that. Mm-hmm. But you know when you're like, you go out jogging or you're working out in the yard in the summer, just that smell of sweat, it's not bad, but it does have a smell. Yes. Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. I was smelling that and I'm like, oh my God, I guess I got to take a shower or something. But then I'm like, I'm like putting my nose down to my body and trying to figure out where this smell is coming from. And it didn't get any worse. And then I'm like going around like smelling the walls, which also smell like sweat before I realized that the smell was just like there in my nose. Like my my brain was like. Yeah, you probably can't smell anything else, right? So if you pick up a marigold or something that has a really strong aroma and you go, you go like, I just smell sweat. (laughs) No, actually, my sense of smell didn't go away, but I was getting phantom smells. Oh, that's good. Uh, yeah, I have this, like, bottle of spearmint oil that I keep on my desk that's basically my do I have COVID uh, first response thing. Right, <laughs> like, right. Nope, I can smell this. I guess I'm good. Uh, yeah, that didn't work out so well. So huh. today's day 10. I tested positive again this morning. I cannot return to my job until I test negative. That's their rule. So I've just been sitting around bored, playing a lot of video games, uh, watching a lot of TV and little else. So I'm very happy to talk to you today. Well, I'm 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 glad that you uh, have climbed out of the pit of illness the way you have, and that we are back recording. I know when you told me you sent me a picture of the test last week, the first thing I thought was, my God, Bill went to Canada and got pregnant, and I had to look really close <laughs> to the test to see that it was a COVID test. Then I thought that was way more rational. Then I thought about 45 different poutine jokes to make, none of which were funny, so I didn't write them down. And then uh, The uh, best joke that we got out of it was because everybody in my group, uh, except for one person, mm-hmm. but I was, I was staying in an Airbnb with five people. Four yep. of us got, uh, got the COVID. None of us got laid out really bad if it did it only lasted like a day. Mm-hmm. So the, the running joke was in Canada, their viruses are super friendly. <laughs> much more polite than the American version of the, the yes. Canadian variant of it is much nicer. Yeah, I, I hear it uh, heals up faster if you watch a bunch of hawk. Yeah. I got the B.A. variant of the virus. <laughs> well, the first thing you want to do a, is put on a toque. <laughs> drink some maple syrup. All right. Uh this is going to be the week beginning, August the 31st. But before we start with our show proper, I have my very popular and always well-received trivia question for you. You know, uh, we were just talking about Canada. If there's one thing that's American more than anything else, it is revenge movies where oh, somebody yeah. gets mad and then just goes out and kills a bunch of motherfuckers. That's um, definitely an American thing for sure. So one of the more recent famous franchises of such revenge film 
is John Wick. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, yep. Starring uh, Keanu Reeves and... Yes. And his dog. And his dog. Uh, in the first John Wick movie, uh, how many people does John Wick kill because oh. of his dog? I'll, I'll give you a number at the end of the show. and We, we could talk okay. a little bit about my relationship with the John Wick franchise when we get there. Okay. All right. All right, so this is the week beginning... August the 29th, and, and Jeff, you know, uh, because of the COVID, I'm, I'm feeling a little under the weather still. Uh, you don't mind going first this week, do you? I don't mind at all, Bill. Not at all. Thanks. August 29th, 1896. The Chinese-American dish chop suey is, I'm saying invented with air quotes, invented in New York City by the chef of the visiting Chinese ambassador. However, this is not true. Okay. I'll tell you why this is not true. Back in the 1850s, as the United States was spreading westward and eastward at the same time for the Transcontinental Railroad, a ton yep. of the workers in California were Chinese immigrants, yes. right? As I understand the history of the dish chop suey, which is generally carrots, sprouts, onions, chicken if you have it, or pork if you've got it, or God knows what else that you've got, kind of mixed yep. together with a lot of salt and soy and, and wine and some other things, and served with rice and or bread or something else was invented by the the cooks who worked on those with those Chinese labor gangs who would make food with whatever they had in those out in the world who are Chinese speakers as i understand it chop suey is the americanization of sup suey which is chinese for whatever we got i made it with stuff so so it's but, a leftover dish it's but, it's like <laughs> It's like hot dog soup almost. It's almost like hot dog soup, yeah. And it, it was something you could make in bulk. It tasted good. It had vegetables in it. And you could make a ton of it for a small amount of money. And yeah. that's kind of where it came from. Non-Chinese workers that worked on the railroad would eat it too. And then in places like port cities like in California, where the immigrants were coming in and where there was a lot of commerce, the Chinese would set up restaurants and they would sell chop suey and other Chinese foods. It became super duper popular. In fact... Chop suey became a big fad in the United States through the early 20th century. And yep. almost every Chinese restaurant started that was at the time was a chop suey house where chop suey was the main thing. And then other foods were added into it onto the American menu and Americanized. I remember whenever we were in high school, whenever they would make the announcements over the intercom in the morning and they'd be like, today's lunch is American chop suey. It's like, oh, God, I know what I'm having for lunch today. Fudge rounds and... Little other little yeah. Debbie snacks. The dish that Bill and I are talking about for American chop suey is generally, at least in our region, made with some sort of tomato product, macaroni, some sort of meat, limited spices, salt, pepper, maybe sometimes chicken broth as well, uh, and it's generally served with like shredded cheddar cheese. Yeah, I just remember the American chop suey in high school was it was beef, tomato. A macaroni of some sort, and you may claim that there was chicken broth or salt or pepper. I just remember that thing just being bland and lifeless. That's why I used to put a half a pound of cheddar cheese on top of it because they ground yeah, up tons I, of cheese. I, that was a strategy I saw in a lot of people. Yep. So it's like, why are these why are these big crates of cheese just disappearing? <laughs> All right, let's get on to the next day, August the thirtieth, nineteen ninety three. The Late Show with David Letterman. Premieres on CBS. Not to be confused with Late Night with David Letterman, which was over on NBC. Right. So this was the culmination of the great Late Night Wars. Right. Johnny Carson had retired from the, um, the Tonight Show in 1992. And it really looked like, at the time, David Letterman was going to be heir apparent. 
And he was down now. Letterman's Late Night with David Letterman aired after the on the same network, but after Johnny Carson, right? It was after yes. the Tonight Show. Right. He was the the follow up. Yeah. After Johnny Carson went off the air, Late Night with David Letterman, and that would take you into the the wee morning hours. Right. So yeah, David Letterman was a heir apparent to Tonight Show for whatever reason. They went in with Jay Leno instead. You know, Letterman was always a little a little more risky. I don't want to say risky like risque. He didn't work blue or anything like that. But he was a little more off the wall where Jay Leno was very safe. Just like Johnny Carson was kind of safe. I'll, I'll you know? tell you I'll tell you what my theory is. Whether or not this is true is is I'd have to go and read up on sort of how the late night wars played out. But from a like a network executive position, Yep. That like last five or six years that Johnny Carson was on, that David Letterman was following him. I'm pretty sure NBC realized that a bulk of the audience for David Letterman is not the demographic that typically watches Johnny Carson, but they tune into like the last half of Johnny Carson to get to David Letterman. Right. Right. And like, because they don't care that David Letterman is like interviewing like Anita Ekberg or <laughs> Gustav Klimt or some somebody who's like who's way more in tune with the audience of like I'm not saying this to be mean older TV watchers. Right. Right. And then when you get to like late night with David Letterman, you've got a lot more goofy sketches. You've got guys like Harmony Kareen and you've got uh, Penn and Teller, Crispin Helley's lover. Right. Yeah. yeah. Penn and Teller, Richard Simmons coming out and doing goofy stuff. You've got his skits with like Mujibur, Sarah Jewel and Mujibur, who I still remember from the 1980s, <laughs> um, 80s and early 90s. Uh, the two guys that had like the store outside of, of 30 Rock where, there's, where they would go down and film them. And all yep. of this sort of weird man on the street stuff, plus the stupid Patrick's and all these other things that were really funny. I remember him tossing watermelons off of the parking garage. I remember sitting there watching and he's like, tonight in our band is Eddie Van Halen. Just yeah. <laughs> playing guitar with Paul Schaefer's band. Didn't get yep, interviewed. Yeah, dangerous band. Yep. Right? Didn't just standing there like with no shirt on, just play. And they're playing like Van Halen songs. And he's like, hey, you know, same yep. thing with, uh, with um, uh, Todd Rundgren and... I saw like the Go Go's. I saw Pierre Ubu. I saw all kinds of people on the Letterman <laughs> show. Again, the band that no one thinks exists right. uh, in our audience. So David Letterman signed a contract with CBS and decided to go head to head with Jay Leno, starting the Late Night Wars. Right. And though they weren't the only two people, there was a, a quite a few late night talk shows on at that time. Fox had just become a network, and right. Joan Rivers had her own show. That was another controversy with you know a little bit earlier on right that was that was like at the very late 80s that but that was, well she was johnny carson's fill-in like yes 80 like percent of the time up until jay leno started to do it and then jay leno was the fill-in all the time right. so well the point that i was getting at with my discussion about the difference between the two audiences is that i think nbc figured like ah jay leno's pretty popular with the kids uh, he's gonna draw some of the young people too Right. I don't think we're going to lose an audience if we drop him in there and we'll do something with Letterman after. He'll still be the draw for the really young people. And Letterman was like, I don't think so. <laughs> That's not cool at all. So he jumped ship. And then his show got like it was the late show uh, with David Letterman was vastly different than late night. It was way more restrained than it was when it was on NBC. Right. They they kind of tried to capture some of that magic, but I mean, I guess there's a lot of copyrights, yeah. you know, uh, involved. I guess you can't exactly do, you know, stupid pet tricks like, um, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I don't remember, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna quite sure there was just like a team of lawyers saying, "Yep, yeah, you can't do that. We own that. Nope, you can't do that either. We own that too." 
he still had a bunch of like great musicians on. Yeah, like uh, guys who were alternative before there was really alternative would be on there. He, that was always aw- aw- awesome. All right, let's move on. August thirty first, eighteen ninety nine. The first car ever to climb Mount Washington <laughs> is owned by a guy named. Freeland O. Stanley, and he does it as a publicity stunt. Now, for those of you who don't know, Mount Washington is the highest mountain on the eastern seaboard. Yeah, that's in New Hampshire. In New, right. It's in New Hampshire, it's in the, it was, I guess, about a seven and a half mile climb for the car. I don't know how many people had to get out and push his... I don't know what kind of car it was, because that's pre-Model T, so it's some kind of hand-built something or other, or a weird thing like a Thompson Flyer or something. Um, I'm sure he put a freaking bumper sticker on it after he was done. Too. Right, this guy. He got to the observatory at the top, and they're like, "Oh, we don't. Need, the gift shop's not open today." Yeah. <laughs> Anybody that's not in the New England area, it is very common, or at least it was very common over the you know some years ago to see cars with bumper stickers that said, "This car climbed Mount Washington." Yes, it's, it's kind of a rite of passage for a, a New Englander to drive your car up there. Comes up as a CarMax flag now. Uh. <laughs> This car climbed Mount Washington. Please repair the brakes. <laughs> and I guess in 1899, clearly there's no paved road that takes you up to the top. So it had to follow right. some circuitous route. Probably turned it 15 or 20 degrees for most of it as he sort yep. of angled his way up to get to the summit. Where, it, for all I know, it was probably getting ready to snow since it was August 31st. And I think they've had snow up there that early. Uh, oh, wow. Much to the surprise of everyone else, he came back down alive. He didn't have to be... Like rescued, he didn't have to At stay 90 there. Miles an hour. <laughs> he must have been spontaneously invented disc brakes on his way down. Um, uh, I guess I'm just picturing with like Fred Flintstone brakes, you know, just with his feet underneath the car. Right. Yeah, and like, and imagine like you know, 1899 car. You're sitting super upright on top of this carriage, and the steering wheel is straight in front of you. You know, like a yeah, like pushing a, your pushing your kidneys up to your armpits right. as you yeah. bounce around the. Yeah. It would the be thing, like yeah. it would be like uh, coming down Mount Washington on a homemade go kart. <laughs> uh, anyway, managed to do it and not die. And all of his fillings came out. He had to have them replaced. Yep. It was probably a smoother ride than it is on the Cog Railway. All right. Moving on to September the 1st, 1982. This would have come in handy for our friend coming down Mount Washington. Mm-hmm. In 1982, the maximum speedometer reading was mandated at 85 miles an hour. And I know why that happened. Do you remember cars from like 1982 to right around, I don't know, it was like around 88? I remember the speedometer in many of the uh, first cars that I owned, except for like, except for that first big blue one. But the Honda that I got after that, yeah, the, the speedometers... Even prior to 82, I think, they uh, they only went up to 85 in certain models and all there, that. There were some. I had a 19, uh, I had a 1970-79 AMC Concorde, and that one only went to 85. So there were a bunch that were only doing 85, but it wasn't mandated. It was recommended. And it was right. recommended when the speed limit was lowered na- nationally to 55 on interstate highways. Right. The, the, we've covered that before. The yeah. speed limit on interstate highways was 55. That was put into effect by Nixon because of the oil crisis at the time, you know, to save gas and make your make your gas mileage go a little bit, uh, you know, further. I noticed that in my car. I, if I got to do a long road trip, I don't go too much over 65 because I noticed that that's probably that sweet spot where I get the best gas mileage. It, it definitely is. The thing with uh, why the speedometers are set at 85 you can thank folks like friend of the show, Sammy Hagar, who can't drive 55 because 55 is a lot closer to 85 on the speedometer than it is to zero. It makes you feel like you're, you're using a lot more of the car's ability to go fast. 
Yeah, I'm right up at the tip. Yeah. Woo. Yeah, because it's not even halfway to 120. You feel like you're crawling along at 55 if you're out on the highway. But right. you're not crawling along if you, if the speedometer ends at 85. You feel like, ah, I'm almost going full speed. I better, you know, keep my watch my feet. I might go 60. It's like, oof. Yeah. You know, ooh. Ooh, Slow down, right? There were some companies that got around that, though, because that was a totally American thing. I had a, f- mm-hmm. a friend named AJ whose dad had a Maserati by Turbo that was like a 1986. Yep. And we took that out onto Route 195, and that had a speedometer that only went to 85. Twin Turbo V6. This is the fastest car I've ever driven. Yep. And the speedometer went to 85, except it was graduated after 85. So it would just, the needle would just keep going. And as yep. long as you could, you know, spot the graduations, you're like, oh, it's 95, that's 105, that's 150. And that's... So there were some cars that kind of worked around that. And eventually, as cars got more efficient, faster, and lighter, and safer, that mandate was done away with. So I know that my, I had a 1988 Dodge Daytona that had 140 mile an hour speed limit, uh, speedometer yeah. in it. Not that the car could hit 140 miles if you dropped it out of a plane, even. But it was yeah. nice to it was nice to think I could get there if I wanted to try. My car, uh, the last three cars that I've had, uh, you know, all the gray Honda Civics, um, <laughs> they they've all had digital speedometers, right. so I don't even know what they go to. Okay, moving on to the second. What do you got? September second, nineteen sixty nine. The first automated teller machine. Uh, for those of you who don't know those three words without the acronym ATM, is installed yep. in Rockville Center, New York, which I'm sure just pissed off the most people in the universe at that time because it guarantee you it came with some policy at the bank that said if you wanted to do like limited deposits or withdraw money you had to use the automated teller machine and then they laid all the turtles tellers off so that wow it's that that early on 1969 yeah i don't even know that they had magnetic strip cards i don't even know how you'd use it you must have had to punch in like five thousand memorized numbers yeah that yeah that that doesn't make a lot of sense like I remember whenever I first worked at the gas station, you know, we had the the carbon paper yeah. credit, yeah, credit card, card slips, <laughs> right? Yeah. Chunk, chunk, yeah. The, where you get the imprint of the, the credit card numbers on carbon paper. I grew up in a right. restaurant that we had that. There were no card readers. We didn't have the infrastructure to support any of that stuff yet. So I don't have any idea how these could have possibly worked in 1969. They probably had just like little child labor kids inside. <laughs> Right, exactly. Bank employees zero zero one and a half, like a coal miner kid with a little candle on his hat, counting out yeah. your money. Just curled up into a like a cannonball position, sideways in the machine, and just like handing you five dollars <laughs> and and your, and your card. Yeah, I'm sure, it had like a little fake microphone sticking out of the ATM, and you'd say like, "Oh, it just says just ask for the money." Like, "Oh, hi, I'm Jeff. My account number is. I'd like a withdrawal of five dollars, and inside you here." Yes, sir. I'm Please sorry. Kill me. To, 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 I'm at. <laughs> Beep, beep. <laughs> the $5 comes out of a slot. Yeah. Um, uh, I changed banks because of ATMs. I used to have a bank account at a local bank here in New England called Fleet. And I went in to, yes. to deposit my paycheck like I did on every other Thursday. And the teller who knew me for being a customer for three years going in every Thursday, I went to the same teller every time. And I said, hi, Margaret. And I gave her my thing and I gave her my license. She said, I need three forms of identification now. And I said, are you kidding me? She said, no, it's bank policy because they want you to go outside and use the ATM to do your deposits. I said, do they? Can I speak to the bank manager? And she said, "Ah, sure. And the bank manager came over and I closed all my accounts and I went to another bank and opened them all up there. Yep. I left Fleet. Whatever happened with Fleet, I left them. I think it was on principle. I think it was like I refused to give my money to people that have named their bank after an enema. 
<laughs> if you don't have the uh, the foresight of that, then you don't know what you're doing with my money. How can I trust you? All right, moving on to September the 3rd, 1995, eBay goes online. And then September the 4th, the first eBay ripoff happens, I guess. <laughs> I've always been weirdly wary of eBay. I've never bought anything from there. I think except for maybe some weird part for like a record player that I was fixing that I couldn't find anywhere else. Yep. But I'm super weird about putting my information into eBay because I don't know where it goes. I don't know who has it. I don't. I, I know that they handle all the payments and things, but again, there's this big gray area in my mind about what yeah, they might well, do. In 1995, it was just kind of like a, a networking kind of a thing. It's a lot more structured now. It's a lot more secure. Yeah. You know, to avoid ripoffs and stuff like that. Because in the early goings of eBay, it was pre- it was pretty easy to get soaked, you know. I actually have pretty good experiences with eBay. I haven't done a lot of buying and selling. I remember in the late 90s, I sold my collection of Misfits t-shirts to a very excited teenager. And then I I'd said it was only going to be $5 for shipping. It ended up costing me like $20 for shipping. <laughs> and I told the kid, I was like, look, uh, that's on me. That's on me. If you feel like sending me another check, that's great, but I'm not going to hold you to it. He was like, no, 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 that's cool. That's cool. And he never did it. He never sent it. So he got a bunch of t-shirts for cheap. That was pretty good. My one really, really good eBay experience, though, I had gone down to Florida. I had driven down there. And upon returning, my car had gotten broken into. Right. That was when I stopped having CDs in my car, and I used to carry around my very first MP3 player, which I still own. One of the CDs that got stolen out of my car that day was a fan club CD from my boys, Marillion. And I ordered another one, you know, from their website, but the one I got was version two, which had a slightly different song selection on it. Mm -hmm. I needed version one. It took me a lot of years to track one down, finally found somebody selling one on eBay. They were in England. Yeah, many years later, I got another copy of that fan club CD. It took me like 15 years, but I I got one. So my son is way more eBay friendly than I am, and he's bought typewriter parts and computer keyboards. He's like a keyboard nerd and all kinds of other stuff from there. Yeah. And as we were coming up on Father's Day this year, he was going to a local like used record and video game store in Salem, New Hampshire. And I said, oh, if that PS4 Godzilla game is around, let me know. And he went on eBay and found it. That game came out when the PS4 premiered. crashed and burned mercilessly because it was mercilessly reviewed as the worst game in the history of PlayStation and vanished. (laughs) It's the worst game in PlayStation 4 history and we're just getting started. And and he he found a copy of it and gave it to me for Father's Day. And uh, again, I like video games. Probably not. I don't play them anywhere near as much as you do, but I do play them now and again. And I'll get and I'll get, I tend to get bored of them kind of quickly, but not this one. I've been playing for like three hours a day, every day since Father's Day. That was my question. Does it Godzilla. suck? No, it does not suck. It is super fun. Nice. It is super duper fun. And I can't believe that people didn't like it. I think, I think that people thought it was going to be something completely different than it was. Oh. And that's a shame because it prevented us from getting potentially other Godzilla games for the PlayStation down the road but this one's it's it's wonderful it's super fun i'll show it to you next time you're here ah i look forward to it all right let's wrap up the week uh september 4th 1972 
the longest-running game show in the United States currently, debuts on CBS. Bill, do you know, I feel like I'm asking the the always popular and well-received trivia question, but do you know which game show that is? Of course I do. I have it written down right here in my show notes. (laughs) I'm no dummy. I'm no dummy. Uh, It is The Price is Right. It is indeed. Which uh, started out hosted by Bob Barker, right? He was the original host, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. And, you know, other than the prices going up courtesy of inflation, the gameplay has not changed since 1972. The price has gone up according to inflation. I remember watching that show and they're like, here's a pack of Mentos. Suggested retail price, $57. <laughs> I think the only other change is like they don't show the audience all smoking like c- cigarettes <laughs> in the audience anymore. <laughs> you know something? I feel like such a ding-a-ling right now. I, I, I have been off work for 10 days with the COVID. I have not once taken the opportunity to do the standard stay-home-from-school tradition of watching The Price is Right. Well, it's probably because you didn't have ginger ale, saltines, and potentially a Swanson's frozen chicken dinner, which was always the thing that I got if I was homesick as a kid, and The Price is Right at the same time. No. No, I had a, well, like a five-pack of mac and cheese is what I had. For suggested retail price, $317. <laughs> yep. Uh, still on, as far as I know, it's currently being hosted by Drew Carey. Yeah, and he's very funny. Yep. He definitely picked up like right where Bob Barker left off and has, has been super fun to watch on that show since. So. Yep. All right, so moving on to the celebrity birthdays. August the 29th, 1939, American film director Joel Schumacher. Oh, the man who put nipples on Batman. Famously, the man who put nipples on the Batman costumes effectively killed the franchise for a lot of years. He did, um, definitely. And I, I don't know if anybody like picked up on it but me, but it's like that was the film where he was fighting Mr. Freeze, so no matter what he was with Mr. Freeze, it always looked like he was cold. Yes. Yeah, uh, I, he put the nipples on. Oh, I can't believe I'm talking about this. He put the nipples on in the the Batman Fall River or whatever that one was called. And then, <laughs> With Val Kilmer. Yeah, and and then the, the next movie, Batman and Robin, everybody had nipples, including Batgirl. There was this time I was I was painting my living room and I, I needed a movie to watch while I was doing that. I have a weird thing where I don't I don't like Nicolas Cage. I just don't. And. I don't like Joel Schumacher, or at least I had it in my head that I don't like Joel Schumacher because of those Batman movies. Now, those two guys made a movie called 8mm, which is like about snuff films. So the premise of the movie seemed interesting to me, even though I hated the lead and I hated the director. And I was like, I'm like gritting my teeth. I'm like, fine, I'll watch a damn movie. And that movie is fantastic. I had to rethink my entire life because of my hatred for both of them. But that movie was great. I I recommend that movie. He's made some stuff that I really enjoyed. A lot of it is older. Yeah. He wrote one of my favorite goofy films of the late 70s or mid 70s, I guess, is Car Wash. He wrote that. Yeah. He wrote The Wiz oh, really? for Diana Ross and Michael yep. Jackson and Nipsey Russell. Yeah, which I watched 35,000 million times as a kid. It's really funny that like there's so many movies that he did that that are great. Falling Down is another one that he did. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But in my pea brain mind, he is sh- because he yeah. did, he put the nipples on the Batman suits. Yep, yep. And, but seriously, but like, I mean, like a Batman franchise is just a license to print money, and you f***ed it up, Joel. You f***ed it all up. <laughs> all right, who do we go next? August 30th, 1943. Currently expatriate American cartoonist Robert Crumb. 
who's probably best known for the Keep on Trucking cartoon that ended up being associated with the Grateful Dead. Tony Danza has a tattoo of the Keep on Trucking guy. Does he? Yes, he He's does. also known for Fritz the Cat and some other, a vast swath of underground comics and, and art that fed the underground comics community. I actually bought a stack of old um, heavy metal and epic illustrated magazines a couple years ago from a local like secondhand place, like a stack of them, like 20 or 25 of the things. Yeah. And inside some of the heavy metals are, are full panels of Robert Crumb sequential art yep. showing like the evolution of a city or the evolution of America based on a single scene that he draws over and over again with it showing progress. Yep. He's an amazing cartoonist and very, very esoteric in his life when he's not necessarily cartooning. Good documentary about him called Crumb. Yeah, I, I see the. It came out in 1994. Yeah, very stylized. Like you may not recognize that name, but you you definitely recognize the art. Yeah, and it, once you associate his style with his name, he's like the same kind of instantly visibly understandable uh, or visibly recognizable as like Keith Haring. Moving on, August the 31st, 1945. Irish singer and songwriter Van Morrison, former lead singer of The Doors. No, he was a former guitar player for Van Halen. No. Oh, well, wait, no, wait a minute. I'm pretty sure he toured in a van, so maybe that's why. He was in the yeah. Doors cover band. Yeah, whenever I would see the name Van Morrison in like, music magazines when I was a kid, I always kind of like pictured them putting Van Halen and Jim Morrison in a Hadron Collider. Uh, but no, he's, <laughs> he's probably most famous for his uh, hit song, Brown Eyed Girl. And uh, lyrically, I think he really speaks for an entire generation when he says, <laughs> from our favorite song there, The Moon Dance. Yes. Well, for me, like Van Morrison is like, I don't know if you've ever eaten like too much vanilla pudding in one sitting, but it <laughs> starts out, it's like, oh, this is really interesting. I haven't spent so long as I've listened to this. This is great. And about 10 minutes later, you're like, oh, well, you know. Ah, it's just, I, it's just not for me. And then 10 years goes by, and then you feel like having vanilla pudding again. That's my sort of feeling about Van Morrison. A couple of, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about whenever Roger Waters performed The Wall at the Berlin Wall. Van Morrison did the chorus for the song Comfortably Numb, which I thought at the time was a real big middle finger to, <laughs> to David Gilmore, because David Gilmore has such a beautiful voice, and Van Morrison has, he sounds a lot like Van Morrison and nobody else. <laughs> a very weird and interesting choice for him to do the chorus of Comfortably Numb. I thought he nailed it, though. I remember that show. I yeah. thought he nailed it. I don't think it was bad at all. I thought, wow, what an audacious choice. And yeah, yeah. I really carried it. I didn't no, think that was the thing. That. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't bad. It was yeah. just wrong. I would, I wouldn't have picked Van Morrison. I would have picked somebody else. All right, who do we go for the first? September 1st, 1957, the rhythm was going to get her, Gloria Estefan, leader of incredibly popular Miami Sound Machine, which was incredibly popular outside of Miami for approximately seven minutes. Yeah, for approximately then, the length of one of their singles, yeah. She sort of stayed with them, but they sort of branded the band as Gloria Estefan because inevitably... For some reason, it happens with female singers in bands is that that tends to be the fixation. And they had a couple more singles with her as Gloria Estefan and the Miami Sound Machine. Mm -hmm. And then th she didn't disappear or anything, but she didn't have hits after that. But she generated so much of an audience in that first year or so that she was touring that she was able to tour for years and years after she recovered from the bus accident that 
her tour bus was involved in that that damaged her spine. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. That's the thing with pop music is there's a very, very, very short memory span, and she got taken out of the business for uh, it was a year, maybe two years, while she was healing up. I mean, they they bro- it broke her back. Yeah. That style of music where you know it was like uh, like the Latino dance music that comes and goes in waves. Like it'll be super popular. Like there'll be a bunch of stuff. And then you don't hear about it for years. And that was it for Gloria Estefan. She, I'm not going to say her career was over because she, you know, you could probably still catch her playing at your local casino, but it, she wasn't going to be a hit maker anymore. For uh, a testament to the longevity of how good rhythm is going to get you is that song still gets played on like contemporary grown up radio mm-hmm. that I listen to. I hear it every day, at least yep. once. That so. was super pop. I remember that was super popular when we were in high school because I hated it. And I remember Kelly Downing just like teasing me with that song. Not that song, it was uh, the conga song. And he would just come up to me, start singing that song all the time. He's like, would you get away from me, please? Yeah. (laughs) All right, moving on to September the 2nd, 1964. The namesake for this week's trivia question, our friend Keanu Reeves. uh, Former bass player for Dogstar. (laughs) Yes, former Ted. Yeah. Did you see the third one? Did you see the I Bill and Ted face yet. face the music? Um, nope, I haven't I, watched it yet. Uh, it's available on Prime now, so you can watch it for free. I bought it whenever it first came out. Um, that was like just as the lockdowns were starting to like like come up, but I still didn't want to like go to the movies and stuff like that. So I bought it and I had a bunch of my friends come over and we all watched it. And I liked it. I liked it fine. The actor that plays Ted's daughter, Little Bill, does a better job imitating Keanu Reeves than Keanu Reeves does. <laughs> I always liked that he ended up playing against type right after this movie when he did uh, The River's Edge, which was a real dark drama right? with Crispin Glover and some others, which was about finding a dead girl on the edge of a river amongst right. this group of like itinerant teens it was really great and then as his star sort of rose he took stranger and more challenging parts in his career so he was in like the terrible version of johnny mnemonic but he was very good in that i remember going to see that in the theater uh basically because we all had like man crushes on henry rollins and henry rollins was going to be in it but i remember going to see that in the theater my friend dan goes there's going to be a talking dolphin and i'm like what are you t- what he goes yeah, I read this book. It wasn't called Johnny Mnemonic. I think it was called something else. Nah, it was. It's a short story called Johnny Mnemonic oh, that's in the book Burning Chrome. Yeah, it's my oh. favorite William Gibson short story. Okay, yeah. that's that's what it was. It was part of a bigger. It was part of a bigger uh, collection of stories. He goes, "No, I read this story. There's gonna be a talking dolphin." <laughs> yep. And of all of the elements in this story that they managed to keep, even though William Gibson wrote the screenplay for that. Yeah. Uh, the talking dolphin was one of two things that they kept. The other one was that Johnny Mnemonic was a data carrier. Everything else in that was completely different. <laughs> All right. Uh, next up. September 3rd, 1964. You may not remember him, audience, but the second round of or third round of MTV VJs, there was this giant guy with even more gigantic hair. Acid wash jeans. And acid wash jeans. It looked like he would have been in poison if he wasn't the guy talking to the Bammers of Poison. Right. His name was Adam Curry. Yes. And he was a journalist and writer and VJ and ultimately hosted for a while the, the news on and off with Kurt Loder and then left MTV, ultimately went off and invented podcasting, which you're listening to right now is a, is a podcast. 
Yep. He was the first guy to build the RSS feeds and the first like to recognize the way that you could use Apple's iTunes and iPods to subscribe to ongoing content. And he did it with interviews. He was the guy. I remember listening to one of his podcasts where he just played like a lot of music and talked about the music in between. He played this song that I remembered as a dance club hit during the 90s. I don't remember the name of the artist, but the name of the song was Ebenezer Good. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I remember this song. I was very excited about it. And then that like led me leapfrogging to a lot of different podcasts that would play interesting music. And I always threaten that I'm going to start my own because I have, you know, an ear for that sort of a thing, or at least I, I like to think that I do. Yep. Um, but this takes up a lot of my time, so I haven't gotten to it, but maybe someday. All right. And wrapping up the birthdays, September the 4th, 1956, a rock star known as Stephen Duran. Um, He's not known as Stephen yeah. Duran. He's known as something else. Yes. More colloquially known as Shockmaster from the 80s, Extraordinaire, Blackie Lawless, uh, lead singer, bass player, sometimes rhythm guitar player, just overall front guy, the face of the heavy metal band Wasp. He's blind in Texas. He is, and I heard he f***s like a beast. <laughs> I was not in on the Wasp uh, popularity when Animal came out, no. but boy was I ever when The Last Command came out. God, that's a good record. Yeah, my friends in high school, uh, they and some of them are listeners too, they were really, really big into metal. Like, it, it didn't take much, you know? Craig was the one that introduced me to Wasp whenever Wasp's first album came out, which is great. And I really, really liked the theatrics of Wasp. You know, it was like a, a live horror movie. There was a lot of, like, blood and, and just... Like I said, overall theatrics, big stage props and stuff like that. And I went overboard. Wasp was my, my sh you know. And then Last Command is another great album. And I think that me becoming so obsessed with Wasp really turned them, him and his brother, off to Wasp. Mm -hmm. They were like anti-Wasp at that point. I was like, no, they're still amazing. And I don't think it helped matters that their third album isn't that great, uh, The Electric Circus. Okay, yeah, I like that one, but I like I like the Headless, Headless Children way, way yeah, more. Yeah, the fourth album is arguably their best. I think the, I think Headless Children is fantastic. And then, honestly, after that, they came out with a concept album called The Crimson Idol, yep. which I don't, to this day, I still don't know a lot off that album. I own it, but I don't know a lot off of it. It never really bit me. And, you know, thanks to Spotify, I've gone back and listened to some of their more recent albums. And when I mean recent, I mean anything that came out after 1994. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. And it's okay, you know? It doesn't really grab me as much as uh, some of their earlier stuff did. Blackie was absolutely, like, notorious. At one point, he wanted to, like, you know, Marilyn Manson was coming up and just being, you know, a shock rocker. And Blackie was like, Bitch, I've been doing this for how many years and you're going to pay attention to him? Right, so, right. so he put out an album that was just like set to offend. You know, that that was the uh, the uh, the goal. And you can't, you can get it on eBay. <laughs> That's about the only place you can get it because Blackie Lawless uh, since then has become a born-again Christian. Yep. And he has pulled that song from their catalog. And there are a lot of songs in the Wasp catalog that he will not perform on stage because of his... Uh, 
his current belief system. I guess everybody evolves, and they never like hit that pinnacle of metal fame that that their contemporaries had. They were right. they were a band for dudes. It's just the way it was. Like they didn't. There, there were girls that liked them, but they were also the girls that typically liked the bands for dudes like Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and stuff. Yeah, and they never got to that sort of stadium rocker size yeah. uh, amount of fame. Wasp and should have been an opening act. Yeah, yep. you know, um, they never got beyond the opening act, but they got pushed to it, and it didn't work out. Yeah, I'm sure that you know all of the bad press that they got for the cover of Animal, Like yeah. a Beast, because of Tipper Gore and the PMRC didn't help. It made it hard for them to sell out shows. It made it hard for them to get radio play because they didn't get radio play. Right. They had videos on MTV for, for stuff from The Last Command, but they were shown like at midnight. Right. And they were the most tame videos ever. Like Motley Crue's videos were less tame oh, sure. than, than theirs, you know? Yep. And it's uh, a shame because they're, they're really good rocket hard rock records. But yeah, uh, like like I was saying, I I think of uh, my friend Craig, who I know is a listener. If he could just interject right now, I like if we could go back in the time machine and it'd be like 1987, I guess. And I'm like, oh my God, Wasp is the best band ever. And he'd be like, Wasp, are you kidding? They have the worst song ever. All right, Jeff. My turn to pick uh, the worst song ever this week. It's a good pick, Bill. It is a good pick. Uh, so It's a shiny pick, Bill. It's a, a shiny, happy pick. It's a happy pick, too. Yeah. This is one of those songs where... For the people. Yep. So anyway, we're talking about R.E.M.'s hit song, Shiny Happy People. Let's play the clip and then we'll go in our, our tirade. liked R.E.M. up until and including the album before this one. Yep. Um, R.E.M. was like, they were out of Athens, Georgia, which I think the only other thing to come out of Athens, Georgia, coincidentally enough, is the B-52s. Yep. And they were a college rock band. You know, you could very visualize 1985, 86 of what the person that listens to R.E.M. looks like. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, they also listen to Talking Heads, Lou Reed's solo records, yeah. but not the Velvet Underground. They listen to... Love and Rockets. Love and... <laughs> I don't even know if Love and Rockets was in that sphere. But yeah, that's... Yeah, I mean, that's the group. It's the yeah. artsy, college kids. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there was that comment that we talk about all the time uh, <laughs> called Nirvana that just came through and just shook up the Etch-A-Sketch of the musical landscape. And then... For reasons beyond my understanding, R.E.M. went from being like a college rock band to being one of the most popular bands around. And they're not, in my mind anyway, they weren't built for that. No, and if you talk to members of R.E.M., they'll tell you the same thing. Um, I remember watching interviews with them and listening to Michael Stipe and was it Mike Mills? Right. Yeah. They always looked like they were super uncomfortable when they were talking about the music that they were making and like that people liked it. I always felt like, you know, like, I, I, uh, 
You know, it's like trying to explain something that someone doesn't understand, mm-hmm. knowing that you're not going to be able to get them to understand it. They never looked like they were comfortable with the fact that they became popular. Right. And when shiny, happy people, a song that they sort of recorded as satire yes. was released as a single and went to number one in the United States. It went to number four in the UK. It went to like number six in Australia and all over the world and all this stuff. They were like, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> Now, when people talk about us, this is what they're going to be thinking of. And this is like, this is our unicorn. This is the only song we have Mm -hmm. that's like this. Right. And, you know, in 2022, looking up the wiki for this song, I had no idea. And now, understanding, understanding what the song is, which is, there was the incident in 1988, I believe, 88 or 89, whenever the tanks rolled over the protesters in Tiananmen Square and the Chinese government put out all this like propaganda about, oh, it's not such a bad thing, this, that, and the other, kind of a downplay the incident. And the song Shiny Happy People is like a satire of the, the propaganda, the propaganda that the planters of the, that, that the yeah. Chinese government had put out. So understanding that, okay, Shiny Happy People actually really fits into the dark cynicism that REM's music was kind of known for, you know? Right. Now, the music video did not help matters. Nope. It didn't. And the fact that they went on Sesame Street and rewrote the song to Shiny Happy Monsters, that didn't help matters either. Did this one come out before Stand or after Stand? After. Stand was on the album Green, which was before this. So, like, Stand was the first, I think, the first of their songs to have a, a music video. No. That got huge amounts of okay. airplay. All right, no. All right, yeah, in heavy rotation. But no, they had a lot of other songs, like um, this one goes out to the one I love, South Central Rain. But no, Stand, Stand got played a lot. Okay, all right, I, I know what you're saying. Stand yeah, got yeah, played a lot. That, and yeah. this song also got played a lot, helped by the appearance of, at the time, super-duper popular Kate Pearson from the B-52s, also from Athens, right. Georgia. This was right around the time that the B-52s had Love Shack, Rome, all in rotation on MTV. Right. Like we were talking about with Gloria Estefan, they didn't do anything after that that was super popular. They just didn't. Love Shack is still played in heavy rotation on the radio stations that I listen to. Yep. It's the only B-52 song I don't like, <laughs> but it's the one that I hear the most. And like uh, Kate Pearson did a song a couple of years prior to that with Iggy Pop there, Candy. Yeah, when he did his pop record, Brick by Brick. Right. And Which is yes. a fine, it's a fine song, but like just imagine somebody was like, you know, I like that song and I just read in the local paper that Iggy Pop is coming to the local venue. We should go see Iggy. That'll be a fun <laughs> night out. And then Iggy comes on stage just like covering himself in peanut butter and jumping into the crowd. Man, you're not ready. You, you, even you, Jeff McLarchuge, after all these years, are not ready for an Iggy Pop show. No, I am not. I do not have that sort of lust for life. (laughs) So, yeah, so Kate Pearson, just like her appearing at that time was just like, how do I want to say this? I don't want to say she ruined the bands. That's not what I'm saying, but... Kate Pearson appearing on your record was a, was a definite distraction away from what the rest of your music sounded like. The, th- the thing with like having somebody like Kate Pearson star on your hit record with you is that if she's not with you, you can't play it live. <laughs> right, 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 right. Especially when she's as big a part of the song. And Kate Pearson has a very distinctive voice, and yeah. it's very good. I think she brings 
she makes the song palatable. I don't love R.E.M. I like R.E.M. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of their records, but I don't go out of my way to listen to them. I usually hear the same like four or five songs on the radio. However, this song, because of Kate Pearson's appearance, is memorable because I like Kate Pearson's voice. Hmm. It's the same with Candy by Iggy Pop. I think that's a fantastic song. It would suck if someone else was doing the Kate Pearson part. Right. And it might be better if somebody else is doing the Iggy Pop part. <laughs> All right. So before we wrap up the show, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Yes. Uh, pretty cut and dry. Uh, tri- well, cut, but not dry. Uh, the trivia question was, uh, in the original John Wick, what is John Wick's body count? After they kill his dog, he takes his revenge and kills how many motherfuckers? All of them. Good, good guess. <laughs> Uh, you know, I don't know. My relationship with the John Wick movies is that I, as I've grown older, yeah. I am far less interested in stuff that's super duper violent. Mm-hmm. So I found that movie horrifically off-putting. Right. And as I was watching it, aside from like, I liked some of the world building. I thought the hotel was cool and like the economy of the coins was neat. I thought all that stuff was fun and yeah. would have loved to have read that in a book that was not about a dude who kills approximately 725 people in 90 minutes. All right, so the body count in John Wick, the original one, is 84. And then the second movie, which I don't remember if I've seen because they're kind of all the same, but the second John Wick movie, the body count is almost 80% higher with ay, ay, ay. with 128 kills. <laughs> I, it was, it was it the third act of him just flying by with like an A-10 warthog and strafing people? The movie just starts and ends with... Yeah, exactly. Yes, it's just that sound and the sound of bullet casings clinking against the ground. Every once in a while, Keanu just goes, whoa, then the credits. But that's going to wrap up the episode for this week. We'll see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Hi, guys. Bye, everybody. A special shout-out to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you for listening to Twibbly, where this week was way better last year. You can find us or message us over at Facebook or Instagram. Just look for Twibbly. That's T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Remember, Robert Hayes from Airplane listens to Twibbly, and I heard he got George Zip to subscribe after Macho Grande.